Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Before we get started today, I want to wish all of you a very happy 2022 and hope so much that we will have relief this year, but hopefully we all found moments of joy in the past year, and I know that just doing this podcast with you has been a real gift, and I've so enjoyed it and hope that you find something that has been helpful to you. My conversation today is a little bit different in that it's not specifically about pediatric mental health, but really more about our own mental health. I think we've all faced the challenges of not being believed as experts in science and what is helpful for the human body. Who knew that vaccines for COVID this pandemic that has taken over 800,000 lives would be so fraught with political divide. I think we've all experienced this in some way, shape, or form. My guest today is no stranger to controversy, and she is so, so brave. And I want to introduce her and give her an opportunity to really talk about physician burnout what it means to face kind of challenges to your own identity, and then to rise. I hope you'll please join me in welcoming Dr. Shelley Fiscus. Dr. Fiscus is a board-certified pediatrician who practiced general pediatrics in Franklin, Tennessee for 17 years before joining the Tennessee Department of Health in 2016. She most recently served as medical director of the Tennessee Vaccine Preventable Diseases and Immunization Program until she was terminated from that position for sharing a memo regarding a 34-year-old case law that allows certain minors to consent for their own medical care. Dr. Fiscus was thrust into the national spotlight after she released a statement shedding light on the choice of those in leadership in Tennessee state government to place their political agendas over the best interest of the people they serve. She has used this platform to support the work of public health and to reinforce the importance of vaccines and other public health measures in ending the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Fiscus is an associate clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. She is a past president of the Tennessee chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and now serves on the board of directors of the American Academy of Pediatrics as the District 4 chair. It is my very, very great pleasure to welcome Dr. Fiscus. Hey, Shelly, how are you doing? Hey, Leah, I'm doing great. Good, good to see you, hear you. Yes, I know in, in my closet, you can see my robes in the background that are my baffles for sound. So uh, it's official. We're, we're recording out of a closet. It's hilarious. 
So I just want to, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. And I always start out these conversations with, you know, what's your path? How'd you get into pediatrics? What made you decide that over some other career? Well, I have often told people that I went into pediatrics because I didn't like anything else. I originally thought I was going to go into ENT. And then for a while, I thought I was going to do burn plastics But everything always ended up being in the pediatric population. Then I thought I was going to be a general surgeon in pediatrics until I realized that like mostly what they do is run bowel and I just wasn't too interested (laughs) in that. Um, And then I was going to do oncology, pediatric oncology. And then briefly, I thought I might do NICU. And then you chose general peds and you get to do all of it, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, kind of. You know, I actually never, it was never my plan to do general peds. I actually gave away all of my adolescent rotations when I was a resident to go do more NICU and PICU, which ends up being a mistake if you go into general pediatrics. But I I actually finished my peds residency at Riley in Indianapolis and then went to Vanderbilt to do a second residency in anesthesiology with a PEDS critical care fellowship and a PEDS anesthesia fellowship because everybody needs to be quadruple boarded. And then after about a year of that, I kind of came to my senses and and left and went into general PEDS. (laughs) Wow, that is quite the circuitous route. That's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, work and hard. Yeah, that was that was a lot. And yeah, I, did, I just didn't need to go that route. But I, I still, you know, I'm a little bit of a medical adrenaline junkie still. So, you know, even in private practice, I was the 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 suturer and the, you know, any anytime someone had something, you know, quasi critical, I was I was pretty excited to to help that kid. Yeah, I can I can see that that would kind of be a rush and you get some of that in in primary care for sure. So you did primary care. How long were you in private practice? About 17 years. I I joined a practice which was ended up being awful and I think that's not a unique situation that a lot of people out of residency find themselves in in their first practice being uh, a a poor choice. Um, And so after about a year of that I went out and started a practice with another pediatrician that I met at the first terrible practice. And we had that practice for about 17 years. Wow. And then you kind of stepped away again and, and kind of entered the public health realm. I mean, what, what, was, what was that? What, what happened? You know, probably 10 or so years into that 17, I started to get unhappy with um, with general practice, you know, partly because we were a small two physician practice and, and, you know, just running a business with two docs is tough. I mean, it's, it's hard financially. The, the, the immunization bills are, you know, vaccination bills are killing you. It's, you know, every other night, every other weekend, every other holiday call for at that point, it had been a decade. And uh, I just had a very different kind of philosophy about work than my business partner did and, um, and started to, to really feel very resentful about that. And then I was also practicing in one of the wealthiest counties in the, well, in one of the wealthiest counties in the country, really. It's, it's the wealthiest county in the state of Tennessee. And um, like a lot of counties that are like that, it was you know, very 
homogeneous beige kind of population, very well educated, very high income levels. And, you know, the things that come along with that, including um, starting to question the importance of vaccinations, wanting to kind of do their own research into, you know, treatments for things and, you know, really just starting to lose faith in medical expertise. And after a while, that that just really starts to uh, wear on you a little bit. And I very much, and, and I've been pretty public about this, um, you know, suffered from, from some pretty significant burnout and really felt like I needed to, to find a different outlet for my skills and my expertise. And so I I was trying to figure out what that was. You know, I didn't feel like I wanted to work for a pharmaceutical company. I definitely didn't want to work for an insurance company. And then an opportunity to go to state level public health came my way. And I was really intrigued by that and decided to kind of take a leap and and left the practice. And so my my then partner is still the solo um, pediatrician in that practice now after five years. And I I took the split and went to public health. Well, what's what's public health like? I mean, what did you like about it? I so my first gig with public health was a was a deputy director over the division that had the maternal child health programs. And so it was working on injury prevention and mortality prevention, trying to reduce uh, infant mortality in Tennessee, which was very high. Um, we started the the state's first maternal mortality program, you know, working on understanding why women of color die disproportionately in childbirth. I was working on the the state's anti-tobacco efforts, the health promotion, good nutrition, go exercise kind of stuff. And and I, I remember going there and, and thinking, you know, what in the world have I done um, leaving practice to come and do this? And it, it took me about four days. And I realized that, oh, this this is actually where I probably should have been all along is is really working on stuff that moves the needle for a population. And I was really energized by that work. And then after about two years there, I realized that that public health, yes, definitely. Um, maternal child health, I wasn't quite so sure, but I had the opportunity to go and, and head up the, the vaccine preventable diseases and immunization program at the state. And that was my sweet spot. It took me four days to, to know that I needed public health. It took me four hours to know that this was the position for me. And it was, uh, you know, 80%, let's get people vaccinated. Let's prevent diseases. Let's figure out how to get people to go get flu vaccines. And then about 20%, holy crap, we think we've got a case of measles. And, you know, let's go figure out how to investigate it and contain it and, and, you know, get past that. So I walked into a multi-state hepatitis A outbreak that was kind of out of control and then went into a measles outbreak and then finished the hepatitis A outbreak and then became responsible for rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine in Tennessee. So it, it was a pretty, pretty intense three years, but I, man, I loved just about every minute of, of that work. 
Sounds like vaccine ICU. It was perfect for somebody that likes critical care. You got fast thinking on your feet and. Oh yeah, absolutely. I always, you know, for like 20 years, I thought I I envied the person who had the job before me. And I was like, man, if, if, you know, if a job like that ever came up, that's, that's what I would love to do. Like applied epidemiology and, you know, tracking this stuff down and figuring it out and infectious disease containment. And, and yeah, I got to do that for, for three years and it was, it was really great. And then all hell broke loose with COVID. <laughs> you can put it that way. <laughs> all right. So many listeners may know who you are because you've been all over the news. Um, hello, CNN. Talk about what happened in Tennessee. Well, so, so long before the vaccine was available, we started planning for the vaccine and, and I was pulled into a couple of different roles in COVID response to and, and part of it was I was embedded at Tennessee Emergency Management to help them vet the, the PPE that was coming into the country to figure out what was good and what was bad and, and to help them develop protocols. I, I was actually responsible for helping guide all of the school systems and colleges in Tennessee through COVID mitigation and how to deal with that opening schools in the fall of 2020. And, and so all that was, was great, but we were planning all along for vaccine and um, had to write a, a really detailed plan about how we were going to roll out COVID-19 vaccine in the state of Tennessee. And, and that plan was one that was heralded nationally as being the, the most equitable and scientifically based plan in the country. So I was, I was really, really proud of that work. And all along, I was advising the governor and the, the health commissioner and the people involved in the governor's unified command group preparing for both the vaccine and just dealing with COVID. And so pretty early on, it became pretty apparent that Tennessee was having some hesitation about promoting vaccines in Tennessee to Tennesseans. All um, vaccines or just COVID vaccine? COVID vaccine primarily, although there there has always been some tension around vaccines. And and you know, for the longest time we kind of knew who the the senators or the um, representatives were in Tennessee legislature who, um, you know, maybe weren't quite on board with, with best practices in science. But over the last five, six years or so, that contingent has grown. And, you know, we've, it, it's not just the, the uh, occasional senator who wants to do something like stop pasteurizing butter anymore. Now it's, it's this growing number of legislators who are really skeptical of, of evidence-based science. And, and so we, we started getting a lot of pushback when we were trying to message about COVID-19 and, and mitigation strategies to the public. And then when we were trying to, to message you know, early on about vaccines. And we, we felt it was really important to start building confidence you know, well before the vaccines were even available to start saying, you know, these vaccines are coming. They're going to be well tested. They're, they're going to be safe and effective when they come out. And we were just getting blocked left and right about doing that, you know, just not permitted to to message any of that. So eventually the, the vaccines came out and, you know, of course, like in all areas, there was more interest than there was vaccine in the beginning. But then 
as that interest started to die down, we still really weren't permitted to message about the importance of getting a vaccine publicly. And then in May. So wait a minute, let me, let me stop you right there. So you're with the public health yeah, and there's a vaccine for the public health and you're not being allowed to promote it. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And actually the the governor's office had taken over all communications around COVID-19 from the beginning of the pandemic. So the, the department of health was really kind of left completely impotent when it came to trying to message to people how to prevent from getting sick. Uh, so th- that was something that we we really struggled with. But in May, when the when the Pfizer vaccine was getting ready to be authorized for the, the 12 to 17 year olds, I started getting emails from and Facebook messages from providers around the state who said, you know, what are we supposed to do if a 16 year old drives up and asks for a COVID-19 vaccine? Can we give it to them or, or not? And Tennessee has, uh, since 1987, has had a Tennessee Supreme Court case law that's referred to as the mature minor doctrine that says that if a child age 14 or older is felt to be mature enough to make a decision about their health care, that they have the right to consent to their own health care. And so I reached out to our uh, legal counsel at Department of Health and said, you know, hey, what can you tell me about mature minor doctrine? I've got people asking questions and, you know, can you help me? And he said, sure. And, you know, here's here's the language. Here's the website link where it's located at, at Department of Health's website. Feel free to share this information however you feel that it's it's uh, appropriate. So I wrote a memo that that just went out to the physicians in Tennessee who were providing COVID vaccines. And I copied and pasted the information that was given to me by Tennessee Legal Counsel. And I sent it out and some provider somewhere took offense to the idea that adolescents had the right to consent for their own care in Tennessee. And they took that memo and the next thing I knew it was posted to social media. And then my husband who was on the the local school board was accused of, of being in cahoots with me and that we were going to go, uh, you know, under the dark of night and go vaccinate children without their parents, parental consent or, or knowledge. And, and then several Tennessee legislators became involved and actually one of them threatened to dismantle the Department of Health because of that memo and because there were Facebook messages that showed a picture of an adolescent that said that COVID-19 vaccines were available for, for teens ages 12 to 17. And so this huge firestorm erupted around whether or not we were going to be able to tell teenagers that they could get vaccinated. And as a result of all of that, there was an overcorrection on the part of the Department of Health where they not only stopped promoting vaccines, uh, COVID vaccines to adolescents, but they stopped promoting any kind of vaccines and stopped doing all vaccine outreach in the state of Tennessee they stopped all of the, the school vaccination events. They were even stopping the, the flu vaccination events that were being scheduled in schools. And for a period of a couple of weeks, there were no vaccines at all being given in the summer of 2020 when all the kids were behind. I'm sorry, summer of 2021, when all of the kids were behind on vaccines, there were, there were no vaccines being given outside of the health department 
you know, at, at all at any of those kinds of community events. And then you heard from the governor. Yeah, I heard, um, you know, in a roundabout way from the governor. I, I was, we were actually on vacation in Alaska and there was a, a meeting of the legislative government operations committee, which is when this threat came to shut down the Department of Health because it was trying to vaccinate people. And when I came back from vacation, I was called in and told that I was probably going to be fired. And I asked on what grounds I was uh, to be terminated. And, and my boss's boss, who had recruited me to the job, said, well, you know, none that I can tell, but the legislature is upset and the governor is running for re-election. And the commissioner had also come out, I think that month in the paper and said that she was interested in running for senator or being governor or getting a White House uh, cabinet appointment. And all of these, all of these folks, you know, need to get along. And so the way to make everybody happy again is to fire you for writing that memo about teens being able to get vaccinated. So um, sacrificial lamb. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Um, So it took about two weeks, which was super fun, you know, to kind of wait around for two weeks, waiting to know when the hammer is going to drop. But it gave me lots of time to pack. And then about two weeks later, I was um, called in and given a pre-written letter of resignation to sign or told that I could acknowledge the expiration of my executive service, which is the, the, the nice way that the state says that, that you've been fired. And, and so having done nothing but my job, I chose to acknowledge the expiration of my executive service. And uh, that was about uh, five months ago now. And then you've been on CNN and there's a BBC documentary about, you know, you being under fire. And, you know, the thing that's hard, you know, in listening to this conversation is I, I put out a tweet one day about, you know, imagine that I'm standing on a pier and there's a family out in the water and they're drowning and I have a life preserver and I throw it to them and they push it away. And that's how this feels that. And it's hard, like, how is it that the politicians, there is no liability for them to not protect their constituents? Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm on the pier with the life preserver and someone comes up behind me and says, no, you can't throw it to them. You know, even even if the people in the water wanted it, you can't give it to them. Right. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was in the process of trying to find another position at the time when, when I was fired because, you know, I honestly couldn't stomach the, the interference of politics in public health and, you know, really just the, the, the unwillingness to understand that the decisions that are being made affect real lives and are causing real deaths and real suffering and, real orphans and real impact to our healthcare system. And that, you know, so many of our politicians just really don't seem to care very much about that because, you know, as long as whatever they do continues their ability to have power, you know, they seem to be okay with it. So I, I was in the process of trying to leave. Obviously it would have been nice if I had done it under my own terms, but the weekend before I got fired, I sat down and I just wrote. And what ended up evolving was, a, I guess, an essay 
about the interference of politics and public health and what this means. And the fact that, so there, there are 64 jurisdictions in the country that have CDC funded immunization programs. So that includes the 50 states, the, the territories like Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., the tribal nations. And um, so there's 64 of us. And over the course of the pandemic, at the, at the time that I left, I was the 25th of those 64 people to step away from their position as director of their jurisdiction's immunization program in a pandemic when we've got, you know, a, a really vital vaccination effort going on. And, and we really hadn't heard from any of them. And some of them were fired like I was, and some retired early. There, there was one who was in service for 32 years who decided to leave. And, and, you know, this is happening in red states and blue states and purple states. And it is, I think, in, in large part um, because of the, the political play in all of this and the overstepping of political opinion into how this pandemic should be managed from a public health standpoint. And I just, I really felt like it was important that um, the 25th one didn't also go away quietly and that there was at least some attention brought to that. So I, I wrote this, this essay. The day that I got fired, I gave it to a reporter at the, the local paper, the Tennessean, and it got picked up by the Associated Press. And, and by that evening of the day I was fired, I was booked for CNN um, New Day in the morning, which has an international feed. And uh, I was, I did New Day. And then my husband's phone started to blow up because people could find his phone number and they couldn't find mine. And we were on, I think, just about every MSNBC show I did a, an interview for The Economist within the first few days with, I don't know how many times I was in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I mean, it was really pretty amazing that this essay resonated, I guess, with, with so many people. The, the, the funniest part, though, was the, the morning after the CNN broadcast, uh, a friend of mine texted me and said, you're, you're on the view. You need to turn on the TV. You're on the view. And I was like, how can I be on the view? I'm not like, I'm not on the view. And I, I turned on the TV and Whoopi Goldberg was sitting there and she says, so in Tennessee, this doctor, Dr. Ficus got fired for trying to vaccinate people at the department of health. What do you think? And she pitches it to, to Joy Behar, who's like, oh, Dr. Fiscus is wonderful and sticking up for things. And they pitch it to Megan McCain, who said, I don't think kids should be able to decide to get vaccinated, which is why I don't listen to The View. And but I, I said, you know, holy, holy crap, Whoopi Goldberg mispronounced my name on national television. That's <laughs> that's pretty cool. And then you also got another very famous phone call, right? Oh, I did. Yeah. So, so my husband, I'm pretty active on Twitter and my husband is sort of lurks on Twitter, but he saw that Chelsea, Chelsea Clinton had retweeted my story and made a comment. And so he commented under her tweet and said, Hey, that's my wife or something like that. And, and so she DM'd him and said, how can I help? And, and he said, well, she's feeling pretty rough right now. So maybe you could just call her and, and talk to her. And so Chelsea Clinton called and she actually talked to me and she talked to my kids and, and she told my kids, you know, I, I know a little something about what it's like to have your mom beat up in the media. 
and she said, you know, if you ever need anything, I, I want you to let me know. And she gave them both her cell phone. So all, all four of us have her phone number and our cell phones. And um, we've texted a, a few times, but that was, that was pretty cool, you know, to, to just have someone take a minute to call you and, and tell you that what you did was, you know, the, the right thing. And that's, I mean, that's what keeps me going is that I know that what I did was the right thing and that the work that I was doing was the right thing. And, and so, you know, since that time, I've spent a lot of time trying to hold the decision makers accountable for putting the people of Tennessee at risk needlessly. Um, and there's been about 12,000 people in Tennessee that have died since the vaccines have become available. And, and Tennessee continues to rank amongst the lowest for vaccination rates in the country. When we first started the program, we came out in the in the top five in the country for getting our vaccine rolled out. And I think that plummet to the bottom is in large part because of the the lack of support for um, not just vaccination, but but really any COVID mitigation strategy amongst a, a good number of Tennessee's elected leaders. Well, I want you to know how brave I think you are. And I, I wonder, it's like, God, would I have enough, you know, chutzpah to, to do what you've done? And I, I really admire you, but I know that this has taken a hit. I mean, you've moved and, you know, you're, you're in a position right now where you're kind of trying to recreate yourself. I'm sure that there's been a flood of emotions. What's been like, what's that been like and, and what's gotten you through? Yeah, it's been hard. Um, I mean, I have had some very, very bad days. And, you know, I think the 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 first one was so so when I was still at Department of Health before, right before I got fired, someone sent me a dog muzzle in the mail that was it came anonymously. It was in, in an Amazon package. And I I didn't really know what to make of it, if it was, you know, really a threat or if it was a joke, I actually thought it was a joke at first. And then I asked around, I couldn't find anyone who wanted to own up to it. And I, I didn't bring it to the media. We, we got our state's Homeland Security office involved. He was kind of trying to figure it out. But Homeland Security brought the muzzle back to me at the house when CBS was there interviewing me. And so CBS saw the muzzle and wanted to know about it and it and ended up making the news. And about a month after I got fired, the Homeland Security investigator released a report that had not been shared with us that that said, well, the muzzle was purchased through her through a second Amazon account that had her credit card tied to it. And so therefore you know, drawing the conclusion that I had sent this muzzle to myself, I guess, as some kind of attention getting scheme or something. And so that was a really, really hard day because, you know, all of a sudden you're all over the press. You know, Axios Nashville picked it up and, and put it out that I had sent this muzzle to myself. And so, you know, being accused of things that you you didn't do when you're already in a position where you've, you know, you've kind of been kicked in the face by, by the folks that you were killing yourself working for is, is really hard. And then I, I think the, the other really bad day was the day that we packed up our forever home that we had built about eight years ago and, and had planned to retire in to move to Virginia because we couldn't, we just couldn't stomach 
living in the environment that had been created in Tennessee anymore after 24 years of being there and raising our kids. And I, I remember going upstairs to check the house after we'd packed everything up to, to do what we call an idiot check to make sure there was nothing behind a door or anything. And, and I just lost it and came down and said, you know, and apologized to my, my husband and my daughter and said, you know, if I had just kept quiet and walked away, you know, none of this stuff would happen. We'd still be living in this house and I'd, you know, just find another job and it would all be okay. And, you know, you asked what gets me through, what gets me through is them both saying, you know, that you had to stand up for all of this and it's just a house and we'll be fine. And we're going to go do something else. And so we, uh, we got in the car and drove off and, and it took a few hours for me to feel better, but it definitely comes in, in waves and ebbs and flows as far as, you know, how hard this is. I've been rejected for a lot of jobs that, you know, I would like to do. And of course the, you know, the question is, well, is it because of this whole like muzzle thing that's out there that, you know, people think I've got some kind of personality disorder because I've been accused of this or, or, you know, am I just not the most qualified person for some of these positions? And um, so that's been, you know, difficult to, to reconcile to. But for the most part, we relocated to Northern Virginia because I wanted to be near DC, where I still hope to find some permanent gig in policy or um, public health with a non-government organization, maybe work on vaccines still. But yeah, I'm still trying to figure all that out. Well, I, I admire you so much. I mean, um, you're a badass. That's all I can say. And, <laughs> and I know that that has come with taking some major punches. So yeah. what else is next for you? I'm, I'm in my head. I'm like, mm, politics, book, um, I think you use the term disruptor, advocate, mm-hmm. role model for sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the biggest thing, so, it, you know, it it kind of amazes me that the media stuff still goes on. So it's it's been five months and I really expected, okay, we'll, you know, we'll be in the media for 48 hours maybe, you know, and three weeks later, I was still getting called to do national interviews or to be on the Lincoln Project or to have another BBC interview. And then, and then this documentary that you referred to, uh, which is, you're going to have to edit this pause out. What is the name of the documentary? I just know it's on BBC. Is it Disinformation Tennessee? No. Anyway. I'll look it up. Okay. So the documentary that you referred to at BBC just came out. Um, there's a book coming out called Female Disruptors that um, Mindy Messner has written. And, and apparently my story is featured in, in that. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to me how it still keeps getting picked up. When all this first happened, there were a lot of calls locally for me to you know, run for senator, run for governor. And I think we get in trouble when we elect people who have no experience whatsoever in, in, you know, anything except maybe one area. And so, yeah, I know elements of healthcare and, and disease, infectious disease mitigation, but I don't know anything about jobs and, you know, the economy and housing and prisons and, you know, that kind of stuff. So Mm, um, I don't know. I think you've got a lot more smarts than a lot of people who are making all kinds of decisions. And I mean, I just think it's, 
there's something that resonates about taking a pediatrician down or at least trying to. I mean, it's like tripping a kid, you know, it's like, really, you're going to go after a pediatrician? I mean, we take care of kids. People puke and pee and poop on us. We listen to cry. We get on the floor with kids. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a glamorous job. It's certainly not like, you know, I mean, we're not making a gazillion dollars. We drive minivans. Yeah, we're the public school teachers of medicine. I love that. But, you know, it's like, wow, you're going to take, you know, punches at a pediatrician. I I would, in my mind, that that resonates like, Mm -hmm. you know, this just isn't okay. This isn't right. And, you know, I think about too. You know, people bring their kids to us when they're sick. They call us in the middle of the night. They want us to reassure them and tell them it's going to be okay. And then walk the very darkest walks. You know, they they do chemo. They take horrible drugs to mm-hmm. try and save a life. And here we're recommending something. And man, some people don't want to hear it. And then there's other people that are trying to keep them from hearing it or talk right. them out of it. And it, you know, it it's it kind of sucks your soul. To, oh, it to kind of get does. those punches. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, so so not going into politics doesn't mean not being an influencer or. I like or, your you know, disruptor. I like that. Yeah, disruptor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I really I really do kind of see myself as, you know, more of a watchdog role and and holding people accountable and calling them out for saying stupid things and, and writing stupid policies, you know, banning vaccine mandates and mask mandates in schools and, you know, things that are trying to keep people safe and stop them from dying. So I, I don't see myself in the, in the political fray. I mean, I just think there's too much deal-making and, you know, I'm just, I'm just not willing to compromise on, on so much of this. So I think writing, to some extent in some fashion or form. And I'm not exactly sure what that's going to take yet. My husband keeps saying you need to write a book. The imposter uh, syndrome person in me says, who would want to write a, read a book that I wrote? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I could listen to you talk about this for a long time because (laughs) I, I I mean, it just takes so much grit to just pick up dust off. And I mean, I, I liken you to like Phoenix rising as you, you know, really, you know, have recreated yourself multiple times here, you know, from prime, well, actually, it was back in your residency, you know, sort of, I'm going to do the ICU gig, and then no, wait a minute, I'll do primary care, not right for me. I mean, that takes a lot of bravery and guts and and that whole, like, what's it mean to be a pediatrician? And what's my mission? How do I change the world? I mean, you're a, you, you want to change the world in in really good ways. You yeah, know, I, so, do. I, I do. I do. I do. I know you do. People I, from dying and suffering from, you know, whether it's infectious diseases or mental health issues or, or whatever. So, you know, I, I will be in some kind of a role where I can feel that we can move the needle on, you know, big things that matter and hold people accountable for doing things that hurt people for self-gain and self-promotion. 
and yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see what that looks like. I don't I don't have it figured out just yet. I liked uh, so Francis Collins last day at F, uh, NIH was yesterday. Uh, so we're I'm going to date us here. Yesterday, December nineteenth, and he said something in in his response about how he was going to go see what he wanted to do when he grows up. And and I use that a lot. You know, I'll either see someone and say oh, I want to be like them when I grow up, or you know, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. And that's, I is very much true. I, I, I am always a work in progress of, of some kind. And this has been a big, you know, like somebody just took the great big lump of clay and threw it back on the wheel and in a blob. And yeah, I've yet to see what, what that's going to end up uh, turning into. Well, I, you know, I know you will do, are doing amazing things. And I mean, I certainly see you as a role model for, you know, physicians and certainly our, you know, trainees and early career physicians, like how do you, how do you do this? I mean, that, that's scary what you've done and what you've been through. I mean, no doubt. So if you could go back from where you are now and tell yourself something when you were a resident, what would you say? Oh, there's a bunch of things. Don't give away all the adolescent rotations. <laughs> <laughs> You might think you're going into critical care, but you just might not. And it might be helpful to know how to do a, a pelvic exam. <laughs> That's one. Um, don't be afraid to go do stuff. I had the opportunity when I was a resident at Riley in Indianapolis to go spend three months in Kenya at our sister hospital there. And I should have done it. And I just, you know, I was... I don't know. I I just, I was afraid to leave for three months and I was married and I just, you know, I just didn't think I should do it. And so I didn't jump. I spent a lot, a lot of years regretting doing that. I finally did get to Africa about 10 years ago and spent a summer there accidentally running a, a clinic, but you know, re regrets never a good thing. And so when you have opportunities, yes, you are good enough to do them. And, and yes, you should go for it and see where it gets you. And and then the other thing is just, you just never know where you're going to end up, you know? So, so about 20 years ago, I looked at the person who was in the job that I had at Department of Health and, and thought, man, that is the coolest job. If I ever had an opportunity to do something like that, that would be so cool. And, you know, about 20 years later, I was in that job and it was so cool. It was the best job. And so didn't need to take 20 years for that to happen. And so if you, if you know that there's something that you would just love, then figure out how to go get it because there are opportunities around. It might mean that you're moving somewhere new or, you know, you have to make yourself a little bit vulnerable to get there, but, you know, find, don't, don't be afraid to go pursue the thing that you think is going to make you happiest. I think that's a great place to, to end. Well, Shelly, I wish you all the best. And I know wherever you land, I mean, you're doing wonderful things right now while you're in kind of limbo, I guess, and just speaking up and speaking out and, you know, keep doing that. We need brave people like you. I need you as a role model. So keep doing it. I and, need you too. <laughs> and I just, you know, wish you all the best with your next journey and know whatever it is that you do make a difference for all of us and especially for the little people out there, our kids and, and our teenagers. So, so thank you. Thanks, Leah. Uh, thanks for, for having this podcast and thanks for having yeah. me on. Um, 
And, uh, you know, this is actually one of the cool things about like getting fired and making a big splash is that you get to do, you know, really neat stuff like this. So thanks for, for everything you're doing. And, you know, you, you and I go back a a little ways, so it's, uh, it's always good to spend a little time with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, have a happy holiday. This will air probably in January. So it'll be post holiday, but I'm hoping that 22 looks way different than 21. And so thanks for all the things you do out in the world. Thanks. I hope 22 looks different than 21 in a, in a good way for a lot of us. Absolutely. Take care, Shelly. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. So I literally stood up in my closet in the recording studio and gave a big shout out and whoop whoop because I think Shelly is an amazing person and I want to be her when I grow up. She is so brave and I am grateful that she took the time to spend with us today and I'm so grateful she's out in the world. So I have a few takeaways for you. Number one, pursue your passion even when it is hard and requires a complete 180. Maybe you're unhappy in the job that you have. Maybe it is not a good fit. It's really difficult to make the decision to leave or do something different. But in the end, you have to feel good about the work you do and you have to be okay in your own skin. So if you need to make a change, then, you know, think about what's best for you and your family. Number two, burnout looks like exhaustion and unhappiness. And when the joy is hard to find, then again, it's time to dig deeper and really examine that. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to episode 69 that preceded this one and um, had an opportunity to listen to Dr. Mika Rose talk about finding joy in medicine and, you know, trying to recapture all that passion, the reasons that we went into this line of work in the first place. Number three, being a pediatrician can look like many things. Some of us do primary care. Some are doing research and academia, teaching, pursuing public health and policy. Some of us are in politics. At the end of the day, though, the common thread is that we are all standing up for kids and looking out for them at every turn, even when it's hard, and especially when it's hard. Number four, These are words of affirmation that Shelley shared and some words for inspiration. The right thing keeps me going. I can move the needle. I am a problem solver. I will hold others accountable in the face of misinformation. This is hard, but it matters to kids. Find your people and don't be afraid. I so admire Shelley and her commitment to children and to the, the practice of pediatrics, even when it's hard. She is a phoenix rising, and kids need us and need her now more than ever. So I hope that 2022 brings you joy, inspiration, and some peace of mind. And we're all looking for some light at the end of the tunnel and are exhausted by the pandemic. I know I am. And as you get up every day and think about how to meet the needs of kids, remember to give yourself a moment of grace. And as always, thank you so much for taking a listen to Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are. If you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend. And if you want to rate me on 
Apple Podcast, that would be awesome too. I'd really love to see your comments. And you can email me at gaginoel at medicalbhs.com. And again, I'm going to be planning out 2022 episodes and would really like to hear from you about what you're interested in. I have some great guests lined up. So please stay tuned and look for every Wednesday's download. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.